Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to another week of the Live Life Christmas Show. Sincere Hogan, Mike Mahler on the other side. Probably, I'm going to go ahead and make a prediction. This is probably going to be one of my favorite episodes of 2018. I'm already going to go and say that now <laughs> because it's really touching on a topic that uh, is near and dear to me, and we've, we've talked about it before. So we have a great guest who took, you know, took some time out to reach, you know, to get in touch with us, and he's very busy. This man is really getting out there and um, has a really good book out there, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But um, first of all, just making sure that Mike's on the other line. What's up, man? You there? I'm doing good, man. Yeah, I'm really looking forward. I'm a big fan of our guest today, and I've read both of his books, Lost Connections, and also Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Day of the War on Drugs, which is also exceptional. If if you want to have a different take than what a lot of us in America think is the solution on that topic, definitely read that book. Very well-researched and very well-written. So We're going to talk to him in a second. But real quick, folks, remember how to support the show. Use that coupon code LLA. Go get 10% off the best nutrition supplements money can buy at MikeMahler.com or AggressiveStrength.com. And then leave us reviews on iTunes, on Stitcher. Share episodes. Don't just hoard it to yourself. Get it on Twitter. Get it on Facebook, especially this episode today, because all of us have either experienced depression or we know someone who has depression or we're just in denial about it. A lot of people who say they've never been depressed, I go, come on, man. <laughs> this is life here. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been depressed. We've all, you we've all been silly, through man. a thing or two. <laughs> it's depressing that you're in such denial about depression. You, know? <laughs> you right. really, really get this episode out there. Anything you want to add, man? Well, no, man, that pretty much covers it, other than also head over to Patreon, get everything ad-free, get the bonus episodes. Get episodes a couple of weeks before these episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher as well by going to patreon.com slash LLA podcast. Pick a tier, join us, and you'll truly be supporting the show by doing that. So other than that, man, we can get to it. Let's get to it. John Ari is the guest. Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. And that's a great title for your book, John, because it, it, that's exactly what you cover in the book. Oh, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Sincere. It's really good to be with you guys. I should just warn listeners that I have drunk enough caffeine today to kill an entire field of cows. So if I speak <laughs> too quickly, I'm also aware that my weird, although I spend a lot of my time in the US, my weird Downton Abbey style accent will confuse people, especially when it goes at like speedy Gonzalez speed. So I apologize. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really, I'm really thrilled that you guys um, like the book and it. The reason I started work on this book, and I spent three and a half years researching it, is because there were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me that I, I couldn't find the answers to. And to be honest, I was quite afraid of looking into this. Afraid I was to look into it. But I find that I actually wanted to start writing this book seven years ago. And I figured it would actually be easier for me to write a book that required me to go and spend time with hitmen for the Mexican drug cartels than to look into the question <laughs> causing my own depression. And, you know, the, the, the first mystery was, I'm 39 years old. Almost every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased in the United States, in Britain, and across the developed world. And I wanted to understand why, and partly that was a more because of a more personal mystery. When I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor, and I'd explained that I had this feeling like pain was kind of leaking out of me and I couldn't control it or regulate it. I I felt very ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story that I now 
had learned was really oversimplified. He said to me, well, scientists have discovered why you feel this way. Uh, there's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some pe- It makes people feel good. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. All you need to do is take these drugs. He, he prescribed me a drug called Paxil. And when I started taking the drug, I felt an immediate and really significant boost. And for a couple of months, I felt great. And then this feeling of pain started to kind of bleed back through. So I went back to my doctor. I got given a higher dose because uh, he said, obviously, I hadn't given you enough. Uh, I, I started to feel another boost. Again, the feeling of pain started to come back through. Again, I got given a high dose. And I was basically in this cycle until I was taking the maximum possible dose for 13 years, at the end of which I was experiencing lots of horrible side effects like massive weight gain, uh, some effect on my sexual functioning. Uh, and I was still depressed. And I wanted to understand what was really going on. So for, for Lost Connections, I ended up going on this long journey over 40,000 miles. I wanted to interview the leading experts in the world on what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. Uh, and also to sit with people who just have very different perspectives from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, to a lab in Baltimore where they're giving people psychedelic drugs to see if that would make them feel better. And I know we're going to talk about many of the things I learned, but I think the main thing I learned is until I went to my doctor when I was a teenager, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning, you know, I was just being weak. I needed to man up, whatever stigmatizing right. say you want to say. And, and then for the next 13 years, I thought it was all in my head, meaning it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain. But what I learned is there's scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are biological. One of them is in our heads in the sense that it's changes in the brain. But actually, the vast majority of them are not in our heads. The main reason why we have a growing and rising depression and anxiety epidemic is because of crucial factors in the way we're living. And once I learned that, it opened up a very different way of thinking about the solutions. Yeah, no doubt. And one of the things you talk about is work satisfaction or lack thereof and how 87% of people are either unhappy or indifferent, meaning only 13% love what they actually do. And of that 13%, three of us are part of that 13% on this call right now. I always found Johan, I always found Johan that anytime I did a job that I wasn't passionate about or enjoyed, even if I got paid well, I would always be depressed. I would always be tired. I was never enthusiastic. I just never understood how someone could just grind through for the next 40 years. And then you start playing these guilt trip notions with yourself because I'm half Indian. So I've been to India. I've been all over Africa. I've seen destitute poverty, just extreme poverty. So you start feeling guilty for even having those feelings. You go, I should just be happy to have a job. I should just deal with it. But that's not getting to the root cause either. But long story short, it wasn't until I got into what I do now that I I genuinely started feeling really good. I was like, wow, I'm excited. now. I wake up in the morning. I can't wait to do what I'm doing. So, I mean, it makes sense that if you hate what you do for a living, how could you possibly be happy? Right. It's like, yeah. it, I just want to add to that, Mike. You know, even when you're saying that you've traveled to India and you've seen, like, people in very bad conditions, you know, one thing, you know, especially my wife, she's gone on a lot of missionary trips and whatever, and she's gone to the same type places, gone to, you know, Uganda, and you see people who pretty much, they don't have all the things that we have access to here, but yet they're some of the happiest people on earth. And it makes you really think like, well, here we're always focused on being successful and, and getting the things. And Johan, you touched on this. I'm going to ask you about that. And whereas 
what they had was, okay, they're sweeping dirt floors with brooms, and they're taking pride in that. They're happy. You know, they may eat one chicken a year, you know, and they have to walk miles for water, yet they're still smiling, and they're not faking it, you know, because they haven't really understood what it is. You know, they don't get any incentive out of faking, you know, happiness there compared to here. So you, you have to ask yourself, come back and ask, okay, so what, what's the disconnect here? And, Johan, I think you, you, you touched on it on quite a few of the interviews I've watched on, you know, the difference between that and us as far as success and when people who, like, and you, like I said, those tribes in Uganda where they're happy with everything, man. So I guess you can touch on that, please. Yeah, so there's a, there's a load of things in what you guys just, just, just said. I guess there's three. There's, there's um, work, there's values, and there's uh, community. So let, let, let's go through them. The, 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 so, yeah, Mike, you, you talk about work and these really striking figures. I noticed that lots of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I start to look at what's the evidence for how we feel about our work, and you point to this right. really the most detailed research we have about how people feel about their work. So what it found is 13% of people like their work most of the time. 63% are what they call sleepwalking through their work. They don't like it, they don't hate it, they just kind of tolerate it. And 24% of people hate and fear their jobs, right? So it's really struck by that. I mean, twice as many, almost twice as many people hate their jobs as like their jobs. And the vast majority of people don't like what they're doing most of the time. And this thing that most people don't like is spreading over more and more of our day. The average person answers their first work email at 7.48 a.m. and leaves work at 7.15 p.m. So we're talking about this thing that dominates our lives. I started to think, could that have some connection to our epidemic of depression and anxiety. And, and so I started to look for the evidence about, well, does work affect depression? And I discovered this and got to know an incredible Australian social scientist called Professor Michael Marmot, who discovered in the 1970s this extraordinary thing. He discovered the key factor, it's not the only factor, that causes depression and anxiety at work. So what he found is, if you go to work tomorrow and you have low or no control over your work, you are significantly more likely to become depressed or even significantly more likely to die of a heart attack. And, right. and, and I was thinking, well, why is that, right? What's going on here? And um, I think it's related to something that connects, I'll come back to this, but it relates to something that connects many of the causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections. Everyone listening to this show knows that they have natural physical needs. Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need clean air, you need shelter. If I took them away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. There's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs, right? You've got to feel you belong. You've got to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You've got to feel that people see you and value you. You've got to feel that you have a future that makes sense. Our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. And it's not the only thing that's going on, but that's a significant factor in our depression crisis. So turn it back to work. Yeah. I actually misunderstood this at first. When I was talking to Professor Marmer, I thought what he was saying is, okay, you've got this elite 13% who are going to have nice lives, get to have jobs with control, and everyone else is, you know, screwed, right? And I started thinking about my family. <laughs> my grandmother, her job was to clean toilets. My, my dad's a bus driver. My, my mother was, um, worked in a refuge. My brother is a delivery guy. I was like, wait, are we just saying that they're doomed? And he said to me, no, Johan, you don't understand. It's not work. And this relates to your question about Uganda. Sincere. It's not work that makes you depressed. It's control over your work, lack of control over your work. So I started to learn that there there's an antidepressant for this, right? 
Um, I went to Baltimore and met a, a woman called Meredith Keogh. Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night just sick with anxiety. She had an office job. It wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wasn't being bullied or harassed, but she'd had very little control and she just couldn't bear the thought this was going to be the next 40 years of her life. So one day with her husband, Josh, she did this quite bold thing. Now, most people listening to this can't do this, but it points to a change that would enrich the lives of most people listening to this show. So Meredith's husband, Josh, had been working in bike stores in Baltimore since he was a teenager. And as you can imagine, that's controlled work. It's insecure work. You do what the boss says. Um, right. One day, Josh and his colleagues were sitting in the store and they just asked themselves, what does our boss actually do? <laughs> they, they quite liked it. <laughs> we seem to fix all the bikes and he seems to make all the money, right? So <laughs> they were going to set up a bike store that worked on a different principle. It's not a corporation where you have a boss at the top who controls everyone below. That's a very recent human invention. It's a democratic cooperative. So the way it works is they don't have a boss. They, they make the big decisions about the business together by voting. They share the good jobs and the shitty tasks so that no one gets stuck with the shitty tasks. They uh, share the profits, obviously. And one of these that was so fascinating going there, to, it's called Baltimore Bicycle Works, their business, very right. successful business, was how many of them talked about how completely in finding with Professor Marmot's, completely in line with Professor Marmot's findings, how many of them have been depressed and anxious in this previous way of working, but were not depressed and anxious now they had control over their work. And it's important to say, it's not like they left their jobs fixing bikes and became Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fixed bikes, right. fix bikes now. The difference is that now they've got control and agency over it. And as Josh said to me in the store, there's no reason why any business should work in this way that makes people depressed, right? The, the, imagine how many people you know. We could turn every corporation into a democratic cooperative. Imagine how many people you know who at the moment are depressed and anxious. You'd feel very differently if they knew that tomorrow they were going into a workplace where they made the decisions along with their colleagues about what work they did, where they shared out the good tasks and the crappy tasks, where they shared the proceeds of the business, where if there has to be a boss, he's elected by them and accountable to them. That's a really radical transformation of how we spend most of our lives. And, and right. I think we should have that change as an antidepressant. Yeah. What's interesting about that also is how many, but the, the, the flip side to that is how many people want to take on the risk of being a business owner? Right. I think some people like being employees because they don't want to have to deal. If the company goes under, they just go to the next job. So right. I like what you're saying, but I think the only pushback some people may have is they go, oh, well, wait a minute. I don't want to, if this company goes under, I'm responsible for help paying off debts and so forth. I don't want to deal with that. And then also you got the, the laziest counterpoint to that. You have the wannabe pundits say, well, Johan, that sounds a lot like socialism. <laughs> you know, it's the first thing that we start saying. That. He's like, and this, that's not what this country's about, Johan. So that, that's the lazy way of coming there without even thinking, putting some thought into what you just said. But it's very easy to be said now because that's the climate that we're in now. Yeah, it's important to say, I think that's a good point, Sophia. To say, Baltimore Bicycle Works is a, is a business that competes in the marketplace, right? Uh, actually, right. It competes successfully in the place um you know there's a study at cornell university that found that more democratic businesses grow on average four times faster than non-democratic businesses far from being kind of you know um kind of an attack on the market these are actually more efficient and you can see why because of course people at ball and more bicycle works are much more committed to their work it's true the the, right. the, the make mike is important not everyone wants to work in that kind of environment and no one's saying everyone should be should be forced to and there were some people at Baltimore bicycle works at the start 
for him it was just too much, right? And you can see why. Right. Um, yeah. So it's not for everyone, but I do think radically more people would like a lot more say over their work. And even no, yeah. if it's a full way towards being a democratic cooperative, every business would benefit from being, you know, giving a lot more say to their workforce and a lot more, a lot more autonomy to work. It also means workers work much better in that in that kind of environment. So that's one of the nine causes of depression and anxiety I write about and one of the solutions. And I think it's a very deep cause, right? When you bear in mind that is how people spend most of their waking lives. Um, if we don't deal with some of those questions, then then um, I think that's one of the, it's, it, I mean, there's so many important ones, but that's one of the really important ones, I think. Yeah. And I think people would be more satisfied, honestly, if they did have to accept some of the risk because it just makes it more impactful and makes it more meaningful. I mean, I've taught seminars all over the world where I'm not only one of the instructors, but the main promoter. So I would promote the entire event, do everything to get people registered to the course, and then pay out the money in the most egalitarian manner, I thought, where I, I would pay myself extra for doing the extra work. But I would notice that other people didn't have the same incentive as I did to bring their A game because they didn't take any risk. They knew what they were going to get paid. Right. So I think that people are going to be more excited about whatever they're doing if they have to take some of the risk, some of the responsibility with it. And they may put more effort into it, you know, just so it's like, well, I know that, yeah, we can make this much, but if I, you know, put a little extra into this now, we can actually get even more instead of just sitting right. back and just hoping and instead of hoping that your boss gives you a raise at the end of the year, right. you know, just because you That's show up for work on time and then get reprimanded, you know? So like I said, it makes you a little bit hungrier. Like I said, like you said, we have a little bit more risk in the game like that. So, right. and that's how we became human. I mean, that's how we evolved as human beings anyway, right? Because it's just doing evolution. You know, when you saw, you had to take a little risk to keep evolving up until the point where we are now. So instead of just remaining being the single cell amoeba and not taking any risk at all. <laughs> you know, so. Well, here's, here's a silly, here's a silly example, right? Let's say I see an attractive woman and I want to ask her out that, that feeling that she may say yes or she may say no. That's part of the fun, right? That's, that's what gets you excited. Yeah, that's what those nerves. <laughs> make it more enticing as opposed to you already know what's going to happen. Whenever you already, or at least you think you know what's going to happen, it's not as exciting. Yeah, and then that's the problem. <laughs> some people are not ready for that risk. They're like, whoa, that, there's that risk of rejection for some that scares the living daylights out of them. And, and they're just like, ah, I'm not going to take the risk. And they end up being lonely. And then eventually they become some of the folks that Johan's talking about. You know, they're just, that's kind of like, it adds to that depression like that. Because again, not just being so risky versus like, ah, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't want to do that because it, that, that, that's painful. That rejection is painful to people. So in their mind, they think that rejection is more psychologically, psychologically painful than just being depressed and feeling alone anyway. <laughs> you know, instead of taking the risk to see, you may not be alone if you go talk to that chick. You know, she may say yes, and you may not be alone. Whereas what is for certain, if you don't take the risk, you will be alone. And they don't see that that's more depressing than taking the risk and the pain of rejection that could cause depression. I, I think that I think saying in what you're saying, I don't think that's what's happening with work, because I don't think most people even know there is the option to have a democratic workplace. So I don't oh, think yeah. it's right. Yeah, it's true. Right. It's just they don't even know, right? And I think the vast majority of people, if that becomes the norm, will prefer that to having no say, right? It's like saying, right. how many people right. defective go and live in North Korea? Hardly anyone, right? But I think you, you, you mentioned a really, really important one there, which is about loneliness. And this is one of the things that was very striking to me in the research. I've been thinking about it a lot for the last week for a reason I'll explain. But um, we are the loneliest society that has 
ever been, right? There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could call on in a crisis? And when they started doing the study years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none, right? There are more Americans who have nobody they could turn to if things go wrong than any other option. You think about what is life like if you've got no one to turn to when things go wrong. I, you know, in all my time traveling around the US, I keep meeting people in that position and you see how devastating that is. And one of the reasons I've been thinking about this a lot more over the past week is um, one of the leading experts in the world on, on loneliness is a, w- was a wonderful man called Professor John Cassiopo, who I interviewed a lot at the University of Chicago. He sadly died last week. Um, and, and he explained lots of things to me. So he'd done this incredible pioneering research. When human beings are stressed, we release something called cortisol. It's a hormone. He showed yeah. being acutely lonely is more stressful for a human being than being punched in the face by a stranger. And he's like, well, this is quite mysterious. And it also proved that it causes depression. I was like, well, what's going on there? He explained, if you think about the circumstances where we evolved, why are we alive? Why do we exist? One of the reasons is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down. But they were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating. Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. This is, this is fundamental to our nature. And if you think about the circumstances where we evolved, if you were separated from the tribe, if you were lonely, you would become very anxious and depressed for a really good reason. You were about to die, right? You were in terrible danger. And so once I'd learned this from Professor Cassiopo, I started to think, well, what's the antidepressant for that, right? How do we deal with that? And I learned that there was an incredible doctor in, in London who, who pioneered this different approach, which has now some really interesting evidence behind it. So Dr. Sam Everington was a general practitioner, and he was really uncomfortable because, like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks role, role. They weren't solving the problem for most of his patients. They were taking the edge off some of the pain for some of them. That's why he gives them out sometimes. They usually weren't solving the problem. So one day he decided to pioneer this different approach. A woman called Lisa Cunningham came to see him, who I got to know quite well. Lisa had been shut up her home with depression and anxiety for seven years, acute depression and anxiety, crippling depression and anxiety. Sam, uh, don't worry, I'm going to carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. There was an area next to the doctor's surgery that was known as dog shit alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. Just scrubland that would go and go in. And he said, uh, what I'd do, go uh, twice a week, come and meet with a group of depressed and anxious people. I'll turn and support you. And what we're going to do is turn dog shit alley into something beautiful. The first time they met the group, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But several things happened. Firstly, they had something to talk about that wasn't how terrible they felt, right? Mostly we just prescribed for depressed and anxious people to go either drugs or for them to go and talk about their misery, right? What this group had was they started to learn gardening. They started to put their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a very powerful present. They also started to form a tribe. They did what human beings do when we form tribes. They started to solve each other's problems. You know. Um, one of the, this is an extreme example, but one of the people in the group was sleeping on the local public bus every night. The driver wouldn't throw him off. He was homeless. Everyone else in the group was like, well, of course you're depressed if you don't have a home. They started lobbying the local authority to get him a home. They succeeded. 
It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in years. It made them feel great. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program, found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for a kind of obvious reason, it was dealing with some of the reasons why they felt so terrible in the first place. And everywhere I went in the world, from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco, I saw a similar thing. The solutions that work best were the ones that dealt with the reasons why people were in such pain in the first place. Do you see what I mean? Oh, yes. I mean, changing, yeah. changing the environment, of course, has a huge Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then, like I said, the counteracting, counter sitting in a therapy group, you know, just constantly talking about your issues and... You, you listen to someone else who's just as down as you are. So it's not, there's nothing really inspiring about those groups in the first place. So and what you want to do is you want to eventually get lifted up. So yeah, there's a place for therapy and group therapy and all that. But like you said, once they got out and they actually started to build something together and do something together, instead of talking about all the things that had torn them apart over and over and over again, then that's when the change really started to happen. And, you know, once again, you didn't have to go to a local CVS to go get that and get it prescribed, you know, and have to check with your insurance for that. So, yeah, that's really good. Way of, that actually connects to something else I learned that I found really quite challenging. So I went and interviewed this, this amazing woman called Dr. Brett Ford at Berkeley in California, who did this, this really um, somewhat simple but quite radical research. So she wanted to, with her colleagues all over the world, she wanted to figure out, if you tried, so say sincere, say you decided now, for the next year, next year I'm, I'm two hours a day, hours a day trying to be happier. happier. Oh, I'm hearing a bit of an echo. Yeah, well, I'm hearing that as well. I'm just going to go and get my headphones because that'll stop the echo. Hang on just one second. Sorry about this. It won't be a second. Oh, no, it's all right. It's all right. We get that kind of issue all the time. It won't be a second. Um, Great. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yep, yes. much better. Oh, great. Perfect. So, yeah. good. so I'll just go back a bit for that bit. So, um, sure. so say that you sincere decided for the next year, I'm going to dedicate two hours a day to trying to be happier. Right. What they wanted mm -hmm. to find out is if you deliberately try to make yourself happier, do you actually become happier? Right. And they did this research in four countries. They did it in the United States, China, Russia and Japan. And what they found was really fascinating. In the United States, if you try to make yourself happier, you do not become happier. But in the other countries, if you tried to make yourself happier, you did. And they were like, what's going on? Why? What they discovered was in the United States, if we try to make ourselves happier, what we do is we try to do something for ourselves. We right. try to get a promotion. We try to buy stuff for ourselves. We try to show off right. on Instagram, whatever it is. In the other countries, most of the time, if you tried to make yourself happier, you did something for someone else. You tried to do something for your family or community. We have an instinctively individual idea of what happiness is, and they have an instinctively collective idea of what happiness is. And it turns right. out our vision of happiness just doesn't work very well, right? It just, it's not the species we are, right? It, human beings who've been individualists wouldn't have survived the circumstances where we evolved, <laughs> right? Right. Well, what you're saying reminds me of this this small town in Italy. I remember reading about it a long time ago, and they had really healthy blood pressure. They had great cholesterol numbers, all the markers that we would look at for being healthy. So people thought it had to be their diet. They go, What's, what kind of specialized diet are they on? Let's duplicate that. 
And what they found is the diet wasn't all relatively healthy by from our standards of what healthy is. But what was really important is this in this small community, everybody felt that they had the support of their neighbors. So in other words, if one guy was depressed, the entire town would come together to help that individual out. Nobody felt isolated and alone like we do out here. And that has a tremendous impact on your health. I think the baboon study, either you mentioned in your book or I've read it elsewhere, yeah, yeah. where there was the, the baboons that are at the lowest on the totem pole are the most stressed because they're basically the pinball for everyone else. The alpha you know, males so pick on them, everyone in the middle picks on them. You know, it's so interesting, Mike, what you just said, because a lot of the things I learned, the lost connections, I, you know, I learned from these experts, but there were certain places that I write about where things just fell into place emotionally for me. And one of them was this, this place in Berlin. And I just, I'll tell the story if you've got a minute, just oh, about what happened. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. It, it, to me, this is, this is so important. So in the summer of 2011, a woman on a big anonymous Berlin put a sign window. It said, like, next Thursday, I, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted from my apartment next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm myself. She was a woman in her early 60s called Nuria Cengiz. She was a Turkish German, a woman in a, in, a, in a headscarf, very religious Muslim. This is a big anonymous housing project, and, you know, anywhere in the United States. And no one knows each other. Uh, people start to knock on her door. And they said, do you need any help? And she's like, no, screw you. I don't want any help. I'm going to kill myself. Now, this housing project is in an interesting place. So when they drew up, threw up the Berlin Wall in 1961, they threw up the Berlin Wall very quickly. And this was the bit of West Berlin that kind of jutted into East Berlin. It was like a tooth. So if the Soviet Union had invaded, it would have been the front line. So for a really long, for the longest time, no one wanted to live in this area. So the only people who lived there were recent Muslim immigrants, gays and squatters punks basically and as you can imagine these three groups would look at each other with a lot of like <laughs> comprehension, right? um, pretty diverse group <laughs> exactly and no one really knew each other but people started to as i say people started to knock on oh sorry you hear oh we're getting that echo again i don't think it's it's not on my side sincere is that on your side Oh, I'm actually muted. <laughs> Just so there was oh, no background okay. noise over here. Um, but what's happening? I know um, Johan's mic kind of keeps clipping in and out a little bit too. So, I oh, really, I oh, really, shit. Yeah. So, but yeah, now everything sounds fine. What should we do? Should we? I guess we just press on and see if it happens again. Um, it's not yeah. okay now. Yeah. Great, great. Yeah. So, so. People started standing outside Nuria's apartment and talking, people who'd never talked to each other before. And right. they just had this idea one day. There's a big thoroughfare that runs through this housing project into the center of Berlin. And they said, you know what? If we just blocked the road for a day and we all stood there and we wheeled Nuria out, we'd probably get some local media. They'll probably let her stay in her apartment. They might even get a bit of pressure for our rents to be kept down because so many people were being evicted from this area because when the wall came down, suddenly what had been like the worst place to live was like prime real estate in the middle of Berlin, right? It was like if you right. woke up tomorrow in the South Bronx was next in the middle of in midtown Manhattan, right? So, <laughs> the, so they did it. They blocked the road and held this protest and they wheeled Nuria out. And she was like, well, I'm going to kill myself anyway. I might as well let them put me, push me into the middle of the road. <laughs> and they yeah. stood there for a day and a lot of media did come and there was a little bit of coverage and kind of Nuria was 
uh, interviewed by these journalists. And then at the end of the day, the police turn up and they say, OK, you've had your fun. Take it down. And the people who live there said, well, hang on a minute. You haven't told Nuria that she gets to stay. And actually, we all want a rent freeze for our neighborhood, right, for our housing project. So right. actually, we're not taking this down. Now, of course, they knew the minute they left the barricade, the police would tear it down. So one of the, my favorite people who live there, her name's Tanya Gartner, who's a, one of the punks. She wears a tiny miniskirt, even in like Berlin winters. She's pretty hardcore. <laughs> Tanya, went, Tanya had in her apartment, like one of those loud klaxons that you use at soccer matches. She went and got it. She brought it down and she said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade. It's going to be manned 24 hours a day. Uh, what we'll do is if the police come to take it down, let off the klaxon. We'll all come down because everyone would hear it because, you know, they all live in these towers um, and we'll stop them. Right. So what happened is people from all over this area called Cotty start to, to just sign up. Right? They don't know each other. And you start getting these bizarre pairings. So Nuria, the woman who put the sign in her in her window, who's in a wheelchair, got paired with Tanya, who's, who's in her tiny miniskirt. <laughs> they got the night shift. I think they got Tuesday nights, if I remember rightly. And, you know, the first few times they sit there through the night, it's super awkward. As you can imagine, they don't have anything to say to each other. They think, oh, <laughs> could there be two more different people, right? And then they started right. to talk. They discovered, in fact, their lives had been incredibly similar. Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 17 years old from her village in Turkey. She brought with her her two children. And her job was to find work and raise enough money to send home to her, to bring enough money to bring her husband over. But after she'd been there for a year and a half, she got word from home that her husband had died and she was stuck on her own with these kids. In fact, she told Tanya something she'd never told anyone. She'd always told people that her husband died of a heart attack. Actually, he died of tuberculosis, which is a disease that was associated with poverty. She'd been really ashamed right. of that. That's when Tanya told Nuria something. She had come to Cotty when she was a little bit younger, when she was 15. She'd been thrown out by her middle class family and she'd come to live in a squat, a punk. She actually got pregnant when she was 15. So both Tanya and Nuria realized they had been alone in this place with young children. They didn't know it, hadn't known each other then. Um, and, the, and they started to bond. All over Cotty, there were these weird pairings. There was a young lad called Mehmet, who was a Turkish-German lad who loved hip-hop, kept being nearly thrown out of school. They said he had ADHD. He got paired with a grumpy old German guy called Dieter, who loved Stalin. Um, and and, and <laughs> Dieter started helping Mehmet with his homework. Um, he, he just All these pairings were happening all over this, this housing project. Directly opposite the housing project, there's a gay club called Zudblock, who's run by a guy I love called Rickard Stein. To give you a sense of uh, what Rickard is like, the previous club he owned was called Cafe Anal. <laughs> They're pretty fun. <laughs> um, that's, that's very descriptive. And, uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, um, <laughs> imagine when they, when they first opened this gay club, you know, it's an area with a lot of religious Muslims. They'd actually had their windows smashed. Richard Rickard said to the, the protesters when it opened, you know, he gave all the furniture from the club to the protests. They actually built a permanent structure in the middle of the road. Um, <laughs> and he started saying, you know, you can have all your meetings in our club. Just come and have our meetings. And even the like lefties at Cotty were like, look, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have a meeting underneath posters for like fisting night, right? It's not going to happen. Actually, yeah. it did happen. You know, as one of the one of the people there said to me, we all had to take these steps to get to know and understand each other. Um, right. After this had been going on for about six months, the protest, um, a guy appeared, 
at Cotty called Tunkai. Tunkai was in his early 50s. He'd been living homeless and he clearly had some kind of cognitive difficulties, right? He has difficulty speaking sometimes. But he's a lovely person. He started saying, can I help? Can I volunteer to do anything? And quite quickly, he became one of the beloved figures of the protest camp. He united the Muslims, the gays and the punks in like love of him. And after a while, they started saying to him, well, you should just start living here. You should live in this structure. They didn't want him to be homeless. And he became, you know, one of the key figures there. After about a year, he'd been there about a year. One day, the police came to inspect the camp. They did that every now and then. And Tunkai doesn't like it when people are arguing. So he went, he thought the police were arguing. So he tried to hug them. They thought he was attacking them. So they arrested him. That was when they discovered Tunkai had for 20 years been shut away in a psychiatric hospital often in a literal padded cell. He had escaped. He'd lived homeless for a few months and then he'd found his way to Cotty. They took him back to this psychiatric hospital in the suburbs of Berlin, at which point the entire protest camp turned itself into a kind of free Tunkai movement. And they descended on this psychiatric hospital in the suburbs of Berlin. And these psychiatrists were like, what is this? They suddenly had like hundreds of People, women in headscarves, women in miniskirts and very camp gay men saying, we want Tunkai back. They'd never had anyone trying to get one of their patients released, right? I remember Uli, one of the protesters, saying to one of the psychiatrists, but he belongs with us. We love him. He doesn't belong here with you. And it took them a long time, but they got Tunkai released. And I thought a lot about that because I thought, how many of us if someone came to take us away, would have hundreds of people descending on the hospital saying, this person belongs with us. Now, many things happened at Cotty, and I write about them in Lost Connections, but... Yeah. And I suppose the kind of headline is, not only did they get a rent freeze for their entire housing project, they got uh, they launched a referendum initiative that got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin to get rents held down across the city. But I remember the last time I went to see Nuria, the woman who put that sign in her window, I'm really glad that I got to see her. I gained so much more. I was surrounded all along by these amazing people and I never knew. I remember one of her friends, Neriman, another one of the protesters, another Turkish German woman said to me, when she had grown up in Turkey, in a village, what she called home was her whole village, right? Right. And then she came to live in the West and she learned that what you're meant to call home is just your four walls. And she said to me, then this protest began and we all got to know each other. And I started to call this whole place my home. And she realized that in some sense, those 30 years she'd been living in the West, she had been homeless because human beings need mm. to feel we belong somewhere. And our sense of home is not big enough for that. And, and, and I, 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 I thought so much about that. And I thought about how, how those people at Cotty had had really deep problems. You know, um, uh, 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 Nuria had been suicidal. Mehmet had kept being nearly thrown out of school because they said he had ADHD. Uh, Tunkai was shut away in a padded cell, right? They didn't need to be drugged. They needed to be together. Problems that right. seem insoluble when you are alone and isolated can be solved when you are part of a tribe, when you're part of a group. Tanya, the, the kind of miniskirted person, said to me once outside the gay club, you know, when you're all alone and you're shut away in your home and you feel like shit, you think it's just you. You think there's something wrong with you. But what happened right. is we came out of our corner crying and we started to fight and we realized we were surrounded by people who felt the same way. Um, and that makes you strong, you know? 
that whole story is a movie waiting to happen. When I was reading it, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was exactly. so touching. It was such a touching part of your book. But as I'm reading this, I go, "This is a this is a movie <laughs> waiting to be because it would be a really inspirational movie, especially the fact that it's true. Because it, it's that part. I mean, your your book has so many good points, but that whole story really impacted me, especially the guy who was taken back to the psychiatric hospital, and then the whole community came to get him out. Like you said, how many of us would have that? Most of us, we would be lucky if people even noticed we were gone. And if they did, they would probably just get on Twitter and say, hey, good luck, man. Let me know when you're out. (laughs) It's so funny. You know, there's this great, there's this Bosnian writer called Alexander Heyman who said, Uh home is where people notice when you're not there. And that to me is such a powerful way of putting it because it made me think so many people, how many people would notice if you're not there for a week? or a month, or a year, you know, I mean, for a lot of us, it would be shockingly few people, and and right. I think it comes back to what we're saying about psychological needs, right, people need to see that they're valued, they need to see that they're part of something bigger than themselves, we need to know that, and I thought so much about how so many of those forms of distress that people had had at Cotty had been pathologized, one of the most important things I learned for Lost Connections is, you know, when Think about what my doctor told me. He said, it's just a chemical imbalance in your brain. There are real biological factors that are going on with depression, anxiety that I write about in the book. But what that says to people is this feeling of pain and distress that you have is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. It's like a glitch in a computer program. And the main thing I learned is our pain has meaning. We feel these ways for reasons, for reasons that make sense. That are right. that is because we live in a culture that's not meeting our deeper needs for many of us. And, and, and if you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy. You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love and support to get those deeper needs met. Not to be pathologized yeah. and told you're mad. Right. Yeah, I think so many of us live in this. We're living in a time. Yeah, go ahead, Cynthia. Go ahead. No, I was saying we're living in a time now where it's, you know, I think it's kind of cool that, you know, in Brazil they were like, they banned ads because we're in a time now where if you're feeling pain, you know, you're told to numb that pain. You know, you don't, you don't have to deal with that. Here, take this, take this drug and go here and just, you know, you don't have to feel it anymore. Don't deal with it whatsoever. You sneeze, hey, take this cough. If you're coughing, take a cough suppressant. No, this is your body indicating that something's wrong. We're off right now, and let's address it. Let's fix this. Don't 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 muffle me or quiet me. That being the body speaking to you, and, and just numb this because there's something that needs to be addressed. And so now we've been trained to do that. We've been trained to just like not use these indicators. That's what pain is. And that's, that's what this being off and feeling sick. And even if it's just in your head, you, you know, you're like, Hey man, I'm, why am I thinking this? Whoa. You know, so it's not like it just popped up one day and like all of a sudden you're thinking suicidal thoughts or you're feeling like, Oh, the whole world's against me. That didn't just come out of anywhere. So it's, that's where it's good to have some, that support group and that, that tribe, you know, to have someone to go and talk to about that. And it's like, even if they're not, not even so much to have them give you the answers, but at least just listen and, and listen without judgment. And I think that's what's really missing because you always have that one person. They're either trying to just be on your side because they love you. A lot of times they love you and they really don't want you to be in pain. Like, oh, it's going to be okay and blah, 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 which is not necessarily always going to be helpful. Sometimes it's really good just to be quiet and let them talk and, and just hear them out. And a lot of times if you let us talk long enough, we'll find our solutions. <laughs> you know, it just comes out like, oh, well, damn, well, there it is. 
You know, and I, but you know, we're in a society where it's like, take this drug and don't worry about that. You know, take this. You sound, take, you sound, you know, you sound like Morpheus right now. In, in the <laughs> <laughs> no, no, what I mean is you sound very robotic. I don't know if it's something with your mic on your end. Oh, I, it's like I don't hear anything on this side. Do you hear anything? Do you hear what I'm talking about, Johan? It sounds, it sounds robotic, at least on my end. Oh, no. I, um, I thought maybe well, it was a little bit robotic. I assumed you had like a robot co-host to... Uh, because <laughs> like we're living in the future, hey, right? hey, man, AI, man, that AI technology. <laughs> is really oh, I know, man. This is what it sounds like on Okay, you know. It's so interesting what you just said, Cynthia, because it, 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 it made me think about another one of these moments when something really fell into place for me. Um. I went to interview this South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, who happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when chemical antidepressants were first introduced in Cambodia. And the local doctors didn't know what these drugs were. They'd never heard of them. So they asked him about them and they said, and so he explained and they said to him, oh, we don't need antidepressants. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? Uh, he thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy or something. Instead, they told him a story. Um, there was a farmer who worked in their community in the rice fields, and one day he stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb, and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's very painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb, and I imagine it was pretty traumatic for obvious reasons. He started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed. Classic depression, right? So they said to, him, to Derek, well, we gave him an antidepressant. Derek said, well, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. Exactly like you say, Sincere, they listened to him. They let him talk. They realized that his pain made perfect sense, right? It wasn't some kind of madness. It was anyone would feel that way in his situation. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't have to be in these fields that were screwing him up psychologically, right? And physically. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was completely gone. They said to Derek, so that cow, that was an antidepressant, right? What those doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization has been trying, the leading medical body in the world, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. You need support and love to get those deeper needs met. And it's so interesting because I started asking myself, well, what's the cow for the problems that we face? And so I, I, I go through in the book kind of seven different kinds of cows, if you like, different kinds of solutions to our problems. But it's so strange because at some level, we all know what I'm saying. But when I was writing the book, part of me was thinking, wow, this is really surprising and radical. And part of me thought, this is just blindingly obvious, right? <laughs> like, it's yeah, just like, yeah. if you, and it's this weird disjunction. At some level, we all know everything that I'm saying, right? This is not going to be, if we stop anyone on the bus and say, hey, guys, do you think being really lonely, hating your job, being terribly insecure, <laughs> and lots of the other things that I write about the book will make you more likely yeah. to be depressed? They're going to look at us and go, duh. And yet I've had this bizarre experience where every time I'm introduced, they say, Johan Hari has written this radical, controversial new book in which he makes these controversial arguments. And I think it's a sign of how propagandized we've been that's right. got to the point where saying that we're lonely and that makes us depressed, for example, of one of the nine causes, that that is a controversial argument. It's just a sign of how much this biological story, which isn't totally false, but is, has been wildly overstated, uh, right. how much that's kind of hijacked our brains, you know?
Yeah. I mean, one of the other analogies you give in your book, not really analogies, just another story, is you talk about these overweight women who went through this program where they essentially fasted for under medical supervision to lose a lot of weight, and then they would lose the weight, and then they would get attention from men or some kind yeah. of some kind of stimulants yeah. of stress, and then they would just put the weight back on. And since you and I talk about this all the time as people in the fitness industry where whenever someone's overweight, people always say you need to eat better and exercise more. Move more, eat better, right? That's what the, and those, and yes, on a surface level, that is what you need to do. But the real question that no one's asking is why are you very overweight in the first place? You know, what happened to you to provoke this behavior? Let's get to that as the root cause. I'm so interested in hearing more about the work you do on this because I think it's so important that people in the fitness world engage more deeply. And some people do. You're clearly great examples with the deeper psychological reasons why people overeat, fear exercise and so on. So I have to say this is the cause of depression and anxiety that I write about that I found most difficult for reasons I can explain. And I've kind of forced myself to talk about this in some of the interviews so to explain the story of how this was discovered, I have to explain something which you've touched on, Mike, which is going to sound like I'm talking about something. You can think, why the hell is he talking about this in relation to depression? But it led to a breakthrough in depression. So in the mid-1980s in San Diego in California, a doctor called Vincent Felitti was given this big task. So they had hugely rising problems with obesity in California as across the entire United States at the time. And everything they were trying wasn't working. They were giving people nutritional advice, wasn't making a damn bit of difference for most people. They were, you know, trying to get the exercise. They wasn't working. And so they, they gave Dr. Felitti a quite big budget and they said, look, just do blue skies research, figure out what the hell's going on here. Right. So Dr. Okay. Felitti started to work with 350 really severely obese people, people who weighed more than 350 pounds, more than 400 pounds in most cases. And, uh -huh. um, so he starts to work with them. And as you say, one day he had this kind of seemingly dumb idea, which was he was like, um, what if what if they just stopped eating <laughs> and we gave them like nutritional <laughs> supplements? Would they just burn through the fat in their fat supplies in their body until they were down to a normal weight? Anyway, obviously, yeah. with like super intense medical supervision, they started trying this. And the crazy right. thing is it worked. Right. They did. In fact, so, for example, there's a woman called who I'm going to call Susan to protect her medical confidentiality, went down from being more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds. Everyone starts celebrating great success. You know, Vincent's congratulating himself. He saved her life. And then one day she just freaks out and starts obsessively eating and gets quite rapidly back to a dangerous weight. Not quite where she was, but uh, a dangerous weight. And Vincent calls her in and says, you know, Susan, what happened? She's like, I don't know. I don't know. She looks down. She's really ashamed. He said, well, tell me about the day that you cracked. Did anything happen that day? She's like, I don't know. I don't know. And he said, well, tell me about that day. It turns out that day something really significant had happened, something that had never happened to her before. A man hit on her. Right? It didn't happen to her when yeah. she was very overweight. She freaked out. Yeah. Vincent said, this is interesting. Tell me about when you started to put on weight. Turned out it was when she was 10. He said, well, did anything happen when you were 10 that didn't happen when you were 9, didn't happen when you were 14? She said, yeah, well, that's when my grandfather started raping me. Mm. What Vincent discovered, he interviewed everyone in the program, 55% of them had put on their extreme weight in the aftermath of being sexually assaulted. What he right. discovered is this thing that seemed to be completely irrational and, of course, is terribly damaging 
putting on a huge amount of weight, in fact, performed a perfect fun- performed a perfectly necessary function. It protected them from sexual attention. As Susan put it to Vincent, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be. Now, this was a very early study. It's a very small study. It's 350 people. So Vincent got, but the results were so striking that Vincent managed to get a load of funding from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, to do a massive study. Everyone who came to Kaiser Permanente for medical care for anything in the next year in San Diego, whether it was a broken leg, migraines, schizophrenia, anything, got given a questionnaire. The first part asked, um, had you experienced any of these bad things? Did you experience any of these bad things as a child? Things like uh, sexual abuse, neglect, that kind of thing. And then it said, have you had any of these problems as an adult? You know, things like addiction, obesity. At the last minute, they added depression and suicide attempts. When the figures were added up by the CDC, they were just staggering. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to develop depression. But when they got into the higher figures, if you had experienced six of those factors, child different kinds of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide as an adult. You don't get figures like that. The reason, yeah. very often in science, one of the reasons I found this so difficult, and I actually felt very angry with Dr. Felitti, you know, it made me realize one of the reasons why I had clung to this simplistic idea about chemical imbalance for so long, even when I suspected there was something about it that couldn't be quite, that it was too simplistic. When I was a child, mm. I had experienced some... Um, you know, my mother had been ill. My dad had been in a different country. And from an adult in my life, I'd experienced some very extreme acts. And I didn't want to think that had power over me. I didn't right. want to think that was something that was still playing out in my life. I didn't want to think about it at all. And actually, when I met Dr. Felicia, I felt really angry at first for him for forcing me to think about this, right? Right. Um, although he's a wonderful man and a wonderful doctor, he wasn't, is nothing to condemn about him in any way. He's a, a hero, but. Do you see what I mean about why I was so reluctant? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can relate to what you're saying. I, I was molested when I was five years old myself, and that had, that's the main cause for my lifelong depression. I've had depression throughout my life, which I have under control to a large extent now. I mean, I know how to manage it through all the things I've learned throughout my life, but I understand the impact that can have. I'm really sorry to hear that, Mike. And it means that one of the reasons I'm glad I stayed with this was what Dr. Felitti discovered, which I think might be helpful as well. So if people had indicated they'd experienced one of these forms of trauma, their doctor was told next time the person comes in, so don't call them in, but next time they come in, is just say a little script to them. And the script like, so I see that you indicated on this questionnaire that when you were a child, you were sexually abused. Right. I'm really sorry that you, that should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? And a significant minority of people said, I don't want to talk about it. But most people did. The average conversation lasted five minutes and then it was randomized. Some of them were also told at the end, if you want, we can refer you to therapy to discuss this more. What was fascinating was just that five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm really sorry, this should never have happened. 
that alone led to a really significant decline in depression and anxiety. The ones who were then and referred the therapy got an even bigger fall. And it fits with this wider body of research. Professor James Pennebaker at Florida State has done really interesting stuff on this about shame. So, for example, we know that during the AIDS crisis, gay men, openly gay men, died on average two years later than closeted gay men, even when they got right. out of care at the same time. Shame destroys people, right? It, it destroys your health, it destroys your mind, it destroys your self-image. Giving people opportunities to release shame is incredibly powerful. There was an old a woman in her 80s who wrote to her doctor afterwards. She had been sexually abused as a child. She wrote and said, thank you for asking. I thought I would die and no one would ever know. And you can yeah. see how... For that woman, that release of shame would be so powerful. You can also see, this was the point at which I really began to be angry with what my doctor told me when I was a teenager. Because I thought, you know, 13 years I was giving chemical antidepressants. Never once did any doctor say to me, has anything ever happened to you that might have made you feel this way? Not once, right? You can see how that story, and you know, to be honest, if they'd asked, maybe I wouldn't have said, maybe I would, it was too shut away, it was too, uh, 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 and certainly I'm not generally critical of doctors, we've only given them one set of, we've only given them one lever to pull, which is antidepressants, we've only right. given them one option on the menu, and that's the problem, fault of the society, not the fault of the doctors, but I do think that story that it's just a chemical imbalance is really unethical, actually, you can see how unethical it is to tell people, for example, who've survived childhood trauma, oh, it's just oh, yeah. a, a chemical imbalance, do you see what, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, even with my, my mother, who she passed away a couple of years ago, but I never had a chance to discuss. I mean, I tried to discuss this very topic with her because I know the signs when someone's been through abuse as a kid without them even telling me. I just know the signs. Mm-hmm. I just pick mm-hmm. up. Now, I'm, I'm pretty confident that my mother went through some abuse, possibly from a very close relative. I could just tell by the way she would ask to certain questions, the way she would answer certain things, the way she would always try to repress any kind of feeling. She always tried to be positive, but it, a lot of it was just being in denial, which was very stressful. So I also do a lot of hormone testing. Hormone optimization is one of the things that I'm very well researched in. And I remember I tested her levels and her DHEA levels, which is the ultimate anti-stress stress management hormone, was basically non-detectable. It just didn't get picked up at all in a test, either a saliva or a blood test. So this just means that hormonally, her ability to handle stress was non-existent. And you could see it throughout her life where little things would really stress her out. She would just go straight to the worst case scenario. If someone didn't arrive on time, she would think, oh, my God, maybe they were in a car accident. You know, maybe the plane crashed. Let me check CNN. You know, it was that kind of overreaction. And I felt that she never dealt with what I feel she probably went through when she was a kid. It was just something that you just pushed away. And it's very common in that society, and especially if it's from a relative, because in, in India, people start worrying like, well, we don't want the family to look bad. So even if you do confess, you go tell your parents, or you tell someone else, they'll say, well, that was just your imagination because we don't want people to look badly on the family or this person. So the, where, I'm, where I'm going is the support is not there, which I think one of the main reasons why so many kids who have been through some sexual abuse don't bring it up. One, it's, it's hard to, when you're a kid, you, you don't really know what happened. You, you can't conceptualize it or verbalize it. So usually if, if you do tell someone, it's going to be later in life. But a lot of times, even then, you don't do it because what's the only thing worse than the abuse is telling a parent or a close one and them not getting behind you 
Like, oh, that didn't happen. No, you couldn't rip. You're only five years old. You know, that's just that was just a bad dream. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think this is for a lot of the factors of depression and anxiety that I write about in the book. We've been moving in the wrong direction. Right. I think with with this, actually, I think we've been moving. I mean, y- you can't move too quickly with this. Every child is left behind is a catastrophe. But I do think we've yeah. been moving in the right direction on this. Um, I do think we're, we're much more, we, we take much more seriously child abuse now than we did even five, ten years ago. Um, I do think we are, we are, I mean, you know, just as I'm British, although I spend a lot of my time in the US, and Britain has gone through this bizarre scandal that's very hard to describe to Americans but basically when I was a kid the most beloved man in Britain was a person called Jimmy Savile who I I guess the the kind of to explain to an American who Jimmy Savile was you have to imagine a cross between like Mr. Rogers because he presented the main children's show Dick Clark because he presented the main like music show and Jimmy Carter post-presidency because he did loads of really admirable charity work when he died it emerged that he had been the most extreme sex offender in British history. He had raped over 1,500 children, including severely disabled children in the hospitals he'd raised money for. It emerged that wow. he had been a necrophile who had raped his own mother's corpse. I mean, like, it, it's very hard to wow. convey to you how insane and, I mean, it's like wow. something from a bizarre novel, right? And yeah. you just think, you know, and it was partly because Britain was such a sexually repressed society that people didn't talk about. There was this idea that children were ruined if they had been molested. And no one would right. want to marry right. a girl who'd been molested, kind of really right. grotesque, who was no longer a virgin, yeah. kind of really grotesque things that facilitated mm-hmm. this man getting away from it. It's inconceivable that you could have a Jimmy Savile figure in Britain today, right? If Simon yeah. Cowell started molesting children, I don't want to suggest he wants to, because I'm sure he doesn't, but <laughs> if Simon Cowell yeah. started molesting children, you know, and a child went to their mother, the mother would not say, shut up. Up, what are you talking about which is what the parents often right. did, not in every instance right. but in a lot of cases which right. are so you know when it comes to taking childhood trauma seriously we haven't gone far enough but we have gone a really long way quite quickly and you know we have to take our successes as well as our defeat right. so i think you right. know that, that there is real real progress there i think oh i think so too yeah i mean we can just tell and we see it in so many different industries now people talking about we see it in hollywood more and more people are coming forward, not just women, but men are talking about different abuses they've been through as well. So I think that I think society has become more comfortable with acknowledging these things and at least taking the first step to addressing it. I think so. I think so. Now, this is a, this is a pivot, but it's an important one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After all that, spending time in nature is another one you talked about in the book where the less time you spend in nature, the more likely you are to become depressed. And people, I think it was in your book, you said that people in prison have more outdoor time than the average person does because they have to have at least, I think, an hour or so. Hour. Yeah, that's hour. A, that's yeah. A, I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, that's, so this is a figure from Britain. Demoralizing. That, yeah, that's a demoralizing statistic right there. So the, I mean, if you're just indoors all the time under artificial circumstances, you're on Facebook all day, Twitter, Instagram. You don't spend any time in nature. Of course, you can have a certain level of anxiety. Yeah, so um, that's a figure from Britain. The average British child spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner. Because by law, a maximum security prisoner has to have 70 minutes. And most British kids don't get that. I suspect no one's done the research in the U.S., but I strongly suspect it would be even worse in the U.S. But but uh, there's a couple of things there. 
one of the people I learned a lot about this from is an amazing person you should totally have on your show. Remind me, and I'll give you an email intro to her, called yeah, Dr. Okay. Isabel Bente, who's an amazing Chilean um, primatologist and just an extraordinary human being generally. Um, and Isabel um, explained to me, so there's lots of different theories. So there's lots of evidence that being exposed to the natural world reduces depression and anxiety. And there's a debate about why that is. Um, there was an incredible accidental experiment in this. The state prison in Michigan has one part that looks out over concrete, bare concrete, and one part that looks out over beautiful green fields, and it's random where you end up in the prison. The study that found the people who looked out over green fields were 30% less likely to develop depression and other mental health problems than people who looked out over concrete. And there's lots of theories about this. So one is we know animals deprived of their natural habitat go crazy, right, in zoos. Oh, yeah. Parrots rip out their feathers. Horses start obsessively swaying. Elephants will grind their tusks, which are their source of pride in the wild, down to like bloody stumps, right? And we have a habitat too, right? We evolved to live in a particular kind of environment. Most of us don't live in that environment anymore. One theory is it's called, it's called biophilia, the idea that we love a particular kind of environment. And this theory is we've been deprived of that environment and that's a factor going on. There are other factors. The one that I thought most interesting fits with this other research that I wrote about in the book, which is about psychedelics and giving people psychedelic drugs. Mm, yeah. um, mm -hmm. So um, I went and interviewed people who've done pioneering research in, at the University of London, in, in Norway, at UCLA, giving um, psychedelics to people with addiction and depression and other problems. And there, we can go into this in more detail if you want, but they found really remarkable yeah. results. But there's a connection, I think, between the research showing meditation has some positive effects, nature has some positive effects, and psychedelics have some positive effects, which is that the thing that connects all three of them is that when you are doing any of those three things in the natural world, meditating or under the effect of psychedelics, generally you experience a sense of awe. You experience a sense that the world is big and you are small, that you're, you don't matter very much, right. that your right. ego is just a kind of artificial and that, these, and that there's much, you're part of a much bigger tapestry, right? And, and that seems to give a lot of relief from depression, partly because what depression is, is becoming trapped in your own ego, your own concerns, your own anxieties, um, and, and a kind of moments of relief from that when you realize you're part of something much bigger um, are incredibly powerful. So LSD, meditate under a tree. <laughs> and you got... <laughs> I've done I've done meditation, I've check, done LSD, and I spend time in nature, but I've never done all three at the same time. That's something that I have to do less there. So, so here's, well, the, here's the thing for the weekend. You know, take some mushrooms, <laughs> go out to the woods, and, and, and just sit there and meditate, and be in shocks of awe right there, man. Like, okay, cool. Thanks, Johan. That's all we got today. Take care, That's the message people are going to run with now. Like, man, that was a great interview, especially that part about recommending psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was so funny because I um, I went to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore where they, this amazing guy, I mean, lots of them have done it, but this amazing professor called Roland Griffiths has been leading the research there, where they, one of the things they did is they give psychedelics to chronic long-term smokers and i was conscious because my mother is a chronic long-term smoker my mother smokes about 70 cigarettes a day there's a photograph of me and my mother where i'm six months old she's breastfeeding me smoking and resting the ashtray on my stomach right and when i when i discovered this photograph she was like i showed it to her a few years ago she said you were a difficult baby i needed that fucking cigarette she said but, the, but 
so they take people like my mother who've tried to stop smoking in all sorts of ways and they give them three doses of psilocybin, which is the active component in magic mushrooms, um, right. over, I think it's a period of six months. But they're incredible. 80% of them, 80% stop smoking and it would still stop smoking six, um, 18 months later, right? Now, to give you a comparison point, the next most successful uh, treatment for smoking is nicotine patches, which has a 17, 17% success rate, right? So something wow. remarkable happened there. And I remember going and speaking to the team who'd done it. And it was so interesting. And they'd done it. They administered psychedelics to all sorts of people. There was one guy called Mark. Um, I won't use his last name because he asked me not to. Who, 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 uh-huh. uh, I thought about this as you, as, as you were talking earlier. He... he had a lot of depression and social anxiety. He had, when he was 10, his dad was taken ill and died. And his mother was just so grief stricken that no one could really talk to him about what had happened. They never really talked to him about his father's death. They didn't really talk about his father at all after he died. And Mark was very shut down, very guarded against the world. It caused him a lot of social anxiety. And he, he went to the program and he was given these three doses of psilocybin. He was quite a uh, conservative guy. The, uh, the only thing he knew about psychedelics prior to that was when he was a kid at church. They used to give out this cartoon that showed that if you took LSD, you'd think your face was melting. You'd be shut away in a psychiatric <laughs> hospital forever. So that was his picture of it. And he was he was given this, this, this psychedelics. And I remember being so moved by what he said. He, he began to picture himself as during this, this psychedelic journey at Johns Hopkins. He, he believed he was in a, a big open lake and he followed a fawn until eventually he saw his father and his father appeared before him and his father said, um, I'm really sorry that I had to leave you. I didn't want to do that. And then he, and he reached into Mark and he pulled out these walls and he said, I want to thank these walls because they've kept you safe. They've protected you all this time mm. that I couldn't protect you. But you don't need these walls anymore, Mark. You don't need them. You can go out and engage with the world now. And he thanked the walls and he took them apart. And in the months that followed, Mark just felt much more able to go out and meet people. He was less anxious. That effect had sustained. He started to learn meditation. Um, he started to learn situations where he could lower his ego and feel safe. Um, fits with this wider body of research about psychedelics. I mean, it's a much more complex story that we can talk about if you want, but the yeah, I remember thinking about that, 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 that. To me, that story that Mark told me was so powerful because it's about ego walls, and you can see in that story both why we build the walls, what they do for us, and then how we build these walls that then imprison us, right? And and it's right. so important that we, of course, we need an ego. You need a sense of yourself. If someone's under the effect of psychedelics, there's loads of things they can't do. You wouldn't leave them to just go and walk down the street on their own, right? Because right. you know they're, they're for obvious reasons, right? They're unguarded against the world. Um, and we need to have some guards against the world, but we don't want our walls to be so thick that they protect us from connecting with other people yeah. or with the things that matter. And so there's this big challenge there. And you, you mentioned you mentioned before, Mike, um, something I think is really related to this, which is the Internet. Right. And um, right. I was really interested in thinking about our relationship with the Internet. So <laughs> I went to the first ever Internet rehab center in the united states it's in uh washington state it's outside spokane in washington state and it was so fascinating because <laughs> out of it first i arrived there it's in this clear and the very first thing i did completely was check my phone 
and feel really pissed off that I had no cell phone reception and couldn't check the internet. And I was like, wait, you're in the right place, right? So I'm talking to the, the patients, <laughs> the patients there, and this woman who runs it, co-runs it, Hillary, Dr. Hillary Cash, who's fascinating. And she said this thing to me that really blew my mind about this. They get a whole range of people who come to the, live, live there with patients who need help. But there's a disproportionate number of young men who are obsessed with like multiplayer role play games like World of Warcraft, right? She said to me, and I spent a lot of time with some, what do the get of these games? They get the things they used to and longer get. They get a sense they get a sense of identity, they get a sense of a way and gain status. Um, they get a sense that they can roam around because like we were saying, they've grown up as basically mm. prisoners. Right. It's like a parody of the thing we've lost. It's not the thing we've lost, right? It's not that there's no, I'm not against video games, I'm not against the internet. Obviously we're talking about the internet, but I started to think the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex, right? I'm not anti-porn. I look at porn sometimes. Porn meets a certain basic itch. But if your entire mm -hmm. sex life consisted of porn, you go around constantly frustrated and irritable because your deeper needs are not being met. No one spends an hour looking at porn and feels valued and held the way you do after <laughs> you've had sex. If the sex goes well, right? right? You don't feel right. sated or valued, you know. <laughs> and, and in a way, I think social media is a bit like that. We didn't evolve, just like we didn't evolve to look at sex through screens, we evolved to actually have sex. We, d we didn't evolve to interact through screens. There's some value in screen-based interaction, no of course, but it's not meeting these deeper, deeper needs. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I have a Twitter exchange with someone or a, or a direct message on Facebook, that's not even in the same ballpark as going out to dinner with someone and having a face-to-face -face conversation. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think, you know, sometimes people say to me, because for both my books, my previous book, Chasing the Screen, which was about addiction, and this book, Lost Connections, which is about depression, people say to me, you right. know, like, they were big, long journeys. I go all over the world. And people said to me, why did you do that? You could have just interviewed all these people on Skype. And I just say, you know, I've done <laughs> Skype interviews, right. and you just don't, you don't get, you don't get more than 10% of what you get when you're sitting opposite person, a person and you That's get right. to know them and, and they can see you and you can see them and you can smell them and there's this embodiment, you know, it, it's just a totally different kind of interaction. Um, right. And they don't sound like Morpheus when they're talking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is true. Also, I mean, when you're face to face, you can't, sit there and check your phone or at least you can't do it without the other person noticing right when, you, when you're on yeah. you're, like right now we're talking on audio i could be i could be doing other stuff while we're, i'm not but i could be checking my phone i could be looking at a book i could be filing papers away right <laughs> you know i had this totally i had this totally crazy i had this crazy experience recently i'm going to write about this i think one of my yeah. nephews is for some reason obsessed with elvis i don't know why so i took him to graceland <laughs> right and we had this experience that just really underscored to me the kind of madness of our culture. So I assume for financial reasons, when you go to Graceland, they don't have a physical person who shows you around anymore. What happens is you arrive and they give you an iPad and you put in headphones and you kind of, the iPad guides you around. So it says, oh, go left uh -huh. here. And, there. and so when you arrive in a room like Elvis's famous jungle room, what you see on the screen in front of you is a representation of the room that you're in, right? So what happens is 
everyone walks around Graceland just looking at the fucking iPad, right? And just, <laughs> and, just and so we're standing in the jungle room, and there's this guy and his wife standing next to me, and the guy turns to his wife and says, "Honey, this is amazing. If you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left." And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I said to him, I said, to him, but sir, there's, a, there's an old fashioned form of swiping that you could do. Yeah, you could turn look. your head because we are, in fact, in that room, right? And he looked at me like I was completely mad and just went back to looking at the screen. And I thought, God, we've, we've really got this crisis of being present. Like, I'm sure you both had the experience oh. of going to music concerts like, recently. Yeah. Oh, I was about to bring that up. Yeah. yeah. Exactly what I was thinking. I went to uh, Judas Priest a while back, right? Really nice seats. Like, my lady and I went to see Judas Priest at a place called The Pearl here in Las Vegas, which is a very nice venue. So we had these really nice premium seats. But I couldn't help but notice this lady in front of me who was literally on her phone the entire time. I don't mean a good chunk of the time. I mean the entire time. I don't think she looked up once to see the band on stage. Mm. And I I had this urge to just grab her phone and throw it <laughs> yeah, as hard as I could because it irritated me so much that here we are at this amazing concert in this great venue, and you have your head in your phone. You could have stayed home and done that. Right. We have a real crisis in being present. I saw Hamilton oh. in Chicago recently, and just people all around me were checking their phones. They couldn't be present. And partly that's this thing about, wanting to show off and display. So you have these people. Exactly. You don't want to have the, it's, you know, actually you could have the experience of seeing Hamilton, right? Or you can display to everyone else. Here I am having the experience of seeing Hamilton. (laughs) And trying to gain status, you know, show it off on Instagram or whatever. And That, that makes me wonder how many experiences do people have just because they want to post about it on social media? Right. Well, Why is one of the, the experience alone enough? Well, this is one of the factors that cause depression and anxiety that I write about in the book, which along with childhood trauma was actually the hardest one for me to think about. So, because oh, wow. I realized how much it played out in my own life. So, yeah. everyone listening to this knows that junk food has taken over the diets of a lot of us and made us sick, right? I said this is somebody basically mm-hmm. lived on KFC for 10 years, so don't say this with any sense <laughs> of superiority, right? But what's interesting is a similar kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. Right. So this, this it's, it's really interesting. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that's basically the gist of what he said. <laughs> um, yeah. but, what, but what, weirdly, no one had actually scientifically investigated this until a wonderful man I got to know called Professor Tim Kasser He's at, uh, at Knox College in Illinois. He's done this really pioneering research. So Professor, no- uh, prof- uh, sorry, Professor Kasser has shown, to put it in the starkest possible terms, there are two kinds of motives that human beings have. So imagine that you play the piano, right? If you play the piano in the morning because you love playing the piano and it gives you joy, that's an intrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it to get anything out of it. You're just doing it because that experience is what you value, right? Okay, uh-huh. now imagine... You play the piano, not because you love it, but, you know, I don't know, because your parents are massively pressuring you to become a piano maestro or in a dive bar to pay the rent or to impress a woman. Maybe there's some, I don't know, piano fetishist out there, right? That, that, would, be, that would be an extrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it for the experience itself. You're doing it to get something out of the experience, right? Now, we're all a big mixture of intrinsic and extrinsic values, but Professor Kasser has shown two really important things. Firstly, the more your life is driven by extrinsic values or junk values, as I think of them, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by quite a significant amount. 
And secondly, as a culture overall, we have become much more driven by these junk values. We've become much more dominated. Exactly that dynamic you're saying, the woman who can't sit there yeah. at the Judas Priest concert but wants to display to people she's at the Judas Priest concert. <laughs> think about, we're constantly being pushed towards these extrinsic values, which are about, don't be, you can see it exactly in the dynamic of that woman. She, if she was present in the moment and sang along to the songs and watched, she'd have a really good time. But actually, by oh, yeah. extrinsically di- displaying yourself, you suddenly become more anxious. Who shared it? Who liked it? Who's saying, OMG, mm-hmm. so jealous in the comments, right? Yeah, exactly. You can see there are exactly. many reasons yeah. why junk values make us feel worse. But just like junk food appeals to the, the need for nutrition, but actually kind of diverts it and makes you sick, this constant desire to display yourself, to be showing off, to, you can see how it makes these makes people more hollow and I, you know, I don't say it's only superiority so much of my life for really for the longest time when I started to feel myself becoming more depressed and anxious, if I'm honest, what I would do would be to kind of show off, right. To do something to try to keep my head above water. And actually I realize now that actually it's like trying to pull yourself out of quicksand far from keeping your head above water. It pushes you down even faster. Right. Oh, no doubt. I think when you do the opposite, interesting things can happen. I remember after my first marriage dissolved, usually you would just, as a man, usually you just keep that to yourself. You don't talk to anyone. But I was living in Santa Monica at the time. I just I just decided I'm going to do an experiment. Next time someone asks me how I'm doing, I'm just going to talk about exactly what's going on instead of giving the canned response of, oh, I'm great. How are you? So a neighbor, I was at Starbucks. A neighbor came over. He's like, hey, how are things going? I was like, well, here's the situation I'm in right now. And he this is a guy who was always in a hurry. He sat down at my table and just unloaded a very similar story. He's like, oh, man, sorry to hear that. You know, 10 years ago, I went through this. And in great detail, he told me about his experience. And then I saw another friend of mine at, at the park where I was working out. Same thing. He's like, hey, how's it going, Mike? And I go, oh, here's what I'm going through right now. Same thing. This is a guy that usually just does a quick hello and keeps moving. Once I told my story, he had to tell me his story. It was just this interesting experience where probably 90% of the people where I would bring up some honesty when I, when they asked me that canned response, that canned question that we get every day, when I would answer with some honesty, people all of a sudden felt they had permission to tell me their story as well. And it was, it was actually really cathartic for everybody involved. I felt better. They felt better. I mean, after a while, I got tired of talking about it, so I, I didn't continue to answer <laughs> <laughs> but for that, for those 48 hours, it was a really interesting experiment. But Mike, I think you've gone to such an important thing, which is the risk and power of vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. You, right. If you, and it is a risk, right? Because if you lower your ego walls and you open up your pain, you know, there's a risk that some people will deride that pain or say something cruel or insensitive or whatever it's a, it's a risk right but the, but the, it opens up the possibility of a much deeper kind of connection and there's a great line um uh james baldwin one of my favorite writers said yes. um he said it's slightly better than this so i'm going to get it slightly wrong he said everything better than i ever could but the he said um that the only use for your pain is if it can help you to understand other people's pain. And if it can do that, it can help you to overcome it. And I think that's right. so that's such a profound insight that we are united by our pain and grief and loss. And actually, paradoxically, the act of sharing it overcomes it, right? Once you know, it's like it's like Tanya said to me in Cotty in Berlin, you know, when you realize it's not just you, 
when you realize that everyone around you feels the same way, actually that paradoxically releases you from that pain. That, that, oh, yeah. that, a sharing of pain is, is, a, is, a, is often a release from pain. That's, that's 100%. And I think that's the other reason why social media is so stressful because people put on this facade of a perfect life. Here's me at the pool, at the Bellagio. Here's me at a concert. Here's me having a great meal. It's just fun, 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 right, throughout the day. So someone who already feels inadequate and you're depressed and you're not happy about your life, if you go on social media and that's all you see, you think, man, I'm the only one who's depressed. Everyone else seems so happy out there. You know, I shouldn't. And, I'm trying and to the flip side of that, your flip side of that, they're showing all these good things that are happening on social media, but that one little second that took them to upload that to hide <laughs> the, the pain yeah. that they're dealing with. So it's like, you know, if I, right. if I fake it, you know, again, they're trying to fake it till they make it. Like if I keep trying to post happiness, maybe eventually I'll actually be happy. And, and so basically <laughs> right. you both are in the same boat. You're just speaking a different language. You know, one, spe- right. you know, one speaking Spanish, one speaking Portuguese, but you're both in Brazil you know, at the same time. Right <laughs> you know, you're both in a Latin country. <laughs> so that's you know, that's, that's, that's so important. And I'm, tr- I'm trying to think if I should say this, but I think I can without making it obvious. What I'm talking about. So I know, um, you know, some people who are kind of social media kind of stars, right? Who've got millions of followers and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And recently I bumped into one of them uh, in the street and I went for a coffee with this person. And this is one of the most miserable people I know, one of the most unhappy, miserable people I know. And a couple of days later, uh, just by coincidence, I, I, I happened to flick through this person's social media feed. And I saw this person was really, really distressed when I saw them. And I saw that immediately prior to literally must have been a minute before we bumped into each other. And then the minute I left the coffee shop, this person had posted tweets about how great their life was, showing off all these things, (laughs) showing how great things were. And I thought there's almost a clear correlation between someone who's showing off how happy they are and the fact they must be miserable. Because actually, by definition, if you are happy in the moment, you don't want to show it off. Right. Have you ever at any point in your life been really happy? And therefore wanted to display it on, you know, like, of course. When yeah, you're, exactly. <clears throat> oh, I got a post about this. <laughs> exactly. That's the moment yeah, when the happiness right. breaks, right? That's the moment when the happiness dissolves. Think about, like, you know, if I think about moments when I've been really happy in the last month, whether, you know, like um, yesterday I was with my friend's kids who I completely love, or, you know, other times in the past month I've been really happy. There have been moments when I've been with people that I really like, or, you know, uh, during sex, or, uh, you know, other things where you think, oh, yeah, this is a great moment. Uh, right. the, the last thing on my mind was, Right, I want to show this off on Facebook, right? Like, I mean, obviously with sex, it would be particularly a judge to show it off on Facebook. But, you know, but, the, but the, you, you know, the, the, but you can see the, what that, what that, the, 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 this, this, this move to, and there's lots of studies that show this as a phenomenon that's been documented by Susan, Dr. Susan Pinker and others called, um, who I interviewed called uh, Facebook depression, which is the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you become it's a bit of a debate about why it might just be that the more depressed you are the more inclined you are to just stay there but i think there's right there's some scientists who say that there's something else going on which is exactly that that you get this distorted picture of other people's lives where they seem to be happy when in fact often the people who seem most happy are going to be miserable as hell when you talk to them right um, <laughs> so it's this and actually facebook itself admitted the heads of facebook admitted this a few months ago for the first time, but they said the solution was just to spend more time on Facebook and say more cheerful things. And I was like, mm, I think I kind of missed the point there. It was like a word. Yeah, exactly. you know? 
Well, I always say the more Facebook friends you have, the less real world friends you have. Yeah, that's what I said. To my, yeah, less carbon based friends you have. So that's what we were joking on the last episode. I was like, yeah, I'd rather hang out with my carbon based friends. And people are like, what does that mean? I said, like, the fact you know what that means, you're already in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> you know, John Cassiopo, that professor, the expert on loneliness who died last week, who's such uh-huh. a devastating loss, he said something really interesting to me. He said, which I thought was a good kind of. Um, little kind of guide he said if social media is a way station to meeting people offline or a way of staying in touch with people who you do see offline then it's good right if it's the final right. destination on the line then you've got a problem that's and right. i think that's a really nice little yeah. kind of rule of thumb for thinking about it 100%. it's not that these things are bad right of course none of us are saying that's right you know, we're not luddites we're not saying facebook is bad we're not saying twitter is bad you know it's just that it, it, it's making it just like you know chocolate isn't bad kfc isn't well kfc maybe is bad all the time but you know chocolate <laughs> isn't bad but you know but it's just you can't eat chocolate all the time right that's not going to be good right, for you. so right. you know it's, it's, if this is part of a balanced life and a healthy life then it's it's totally fine if it dominates too much of your life as it does for many of us and i think one of the things that's really worth thinking about with the internet is the moment in history when it arrives right so for most of us the internet arrives in the late 90s the early 2000s and a lot of the things that i've I'm talking about that have driven up depression and anxiety were already supercharged well before that loneliness, junk values, all sorts of things. Um, but what's interesting is the internet arrives and it looks an awful lot like the things we've lost, right? It offers you, you've lost your friends, but it gives you Facebook friends. You've lost status, but it gives you status updates. You know, Mark Marin, the comedian said 90% of, um, all Facebook status updates could boil down to the sentiment, would somebody somewhere please acknowledge I exist? And I really right. think there's, there's exactly. this, it, it's this parody of the thing we've lost. It's a simulacra, we, since we keep talking about the matrix, it's a matrix-like simulacra <laughs> of the things we've lost. It's, but it's not the thing we've lost, right? It's, it's porn to sex. It's, it, it's not mm-hmm. the thing you've lost. Um, and what we need to do is return to the things we've, we've lost. Again, think about Cotty, that protest movement in Berlin. If that had been a Twitter hashtag, <laughs> they would not have had that fulfilling, <laughs> amazing yeah. experience that so many of them had. It, it might have still had some right. positive effects, right? But it wouldn't be the thing that it was. Um, if they opened up a if they opened up a Facebook group and then just connected on there, <laughs> they wouldn't have made those <laughs> meaningful connections. They wouldn't have had that civil power to provoke change. No way. Yeah, it would, exactly. It wouldn't have been worthless, but it wouldn't have been the most deep and meaningful thing that could happen. Right. And I think it's that exactly. thing about these are superficial mediums because they don't really fit with what we evolved to have in our lives. Right. We none, no ancestor, n- no human prior to our the most extreme and great grandparents, but more likely grandparents, um, you know, interacted via well, would have watched screens in any form. They certainly didn't interact via screens. I mean, if I think about. You know, my grandparents' lives, my, my, my dad was born on this tiny Swiss mountain in a very poor village in Switzerland. My Swiss grandfather, I mean, you know, he left Switzerland twice in his life, once to come to London for two days. He hated it. The other two to go to Italy, which is like an hour's drive away. And he hated Italy as well. Uh, so, you know, you think about that. And now, he's, you know, think about compare that to my life and the way I live. It's just this completely uh, bizarre uh contrast and it's not that his life was so great and my life is bad or anything like that it's just you know that's how recent screen based humans have lived like my grandfather for a lot longer than they lived for screen based uh, interaction for example oh yeah yeah 
Now here's here's the other thing I think in your book that's really interesting is you had this chapter or passage on guaranteed income and how this was initiated in Canada for a while. Now, to those of us that are Americans, we automatically think welfare losers. Oh, if you just give people money, they're just going to be a bunch of lazy losers and sit around and do nothing. But that is not what happened in the situation, right? People got around $19,000 a year guaranteed income. And what happened is you're less likely to have an employer mistreat you because you no longer have to just put up with that out of fear of losing your job, because if you want to quit that job, you have some intermediary income that you can rely on. So it pretty yeah. much had the exact opposite effect that those of us think it would have if we initiated something similar. Well, it's interesting. Depression is lowest in the United States among, um, and this is surprising, among um, older people. And I think one of the reasons is because older people have a guaranteed income, right? It's not a great right. guaranteed income, but they have a pension, right? Right. Um, right. Um, I mean, it's interesting. So just to explain what happened and forced me to go in five minutes because I, I meant to do another interview. But the, um, oh, yeah, sure. The, the, so in the 1970s, the Canadian government did this really interesting experiment. They chose a town. It seems they genuinely chose this town at random. It's a town called Dauphin. It's in Manitoba. Anyone who knows Canada, it's now four hours out of Winnipeg. And they said to a really large number of people in this town, from now on, we're going to give you a guaranteed basic income. It's a little bit less. It was 12,000 US dollars in today's money. And they gave it to okay. me in monthly installments. And they said to them, you haven't got to do anything in return for this. And there's nothing you can do that means we're going to take it away for the duration of this experiment. You're citizens of our country. We want you to have a good life. Right. And they followed it to see what happened. It was followed by an amazing social scientist called Dr. Evelyn Bourget, who I interviewed. And loads of things happened. Like you say, virtually nobody stopped working, but some people turned down shitty jobs and held up for better jobs, which meant that work standards overall improved. Um, uh -huh. People spent more time with their children. People spent more time studying. But the biggest thing, thing is there was a really significant fall in mental health problems. Mental health problems that were so severe, people had to be shut away in hospital, fell by 9% in just three years. A really big fall. It didn't happen in the areas what does that tell us it tells us something really obvious we already knew this in one way people who have an income from property are 10 times less likely to develop an anxiety disorder than people who don't right mm -hmm. obviously financial insecurity makes you feel worse and um, oh, more yeah. than 50% of Americans because of the tremendous financial pressure they've been put under and because of the distribution of wealth upwards to the rich have not been able to set aside $500 for if a crisis comes along Think about how frightening life is. And I know this from some of my relatives and some of the way I grew up. Think about how frightening right. life is if you've got no money aside for something goes wrong, right? Obviously, yeah. it makes you yeah. feel like shit, right? It's not rocket science. What, 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 what you guarantee basic income does is it restores to people a minimal amount of security. It restores to them. It doesn't say you're going to have a luxurious life. You're obviously not going to have a luxurious life on $12,000 a year, but you're not going to be homeless. You're not going to, you're not going to be in a terrible state. You're going to be, you know, somewhat better off right it gives you just a baseline of security below which you will not fall and yeah the idea that that makes people you know leeches and you know whatever you know idea is put about by that is not borne out by the evidence people carried on working you know but they they um they were more secure and they held out for better jobs and they you know and they spent more time with their kids you know all sorts of really and there's lots of other examples about this so for example one of the ones I think is most interesting, there's a Native American tribe 
in the Rocky Mountains, they've got a de facto basic income. What happened is they opened a casino, and unlike a lot of the tribes that have done this, they decided to just share the proceeds absolutely equally among everyone in the tribe. Um, uh, you know, and I forget what the figure was. I think they got, it meant that everyone got, I think, $8,000 a year. One of the things that happened in the years that followed was a massive fall in childhood depression and ADHD. And you think, well, why is that? It's because parents were able to spend more time with their kids. And what do kids need? They need time with their parents. They need a community. They need people around them, right? Right. And right. a lot of the depression they experience is just that the, instead of well, the parents, parents just can't spend time with their kids because they're so stressed out, right? So, um, and they're trying to keep, you know, keep a house over, a roof over their kids' heads. So I think a lot of these things. Now, by the way, that universal basic income, Dr. Evelyn Forger, who studied that, said to me, that should be regarded as an antidepressant, right? It's an right. intervention that really significantly reduces depression. That's not what we typically think of when we picture an antidepressant. But because there are such deep social causes of depression and anxiety, what we need are deep social solutions. And President Obama, towards the end of his term, said he thinks we're going to need a universal basic income, that it will happen in the next 20 years, in part because technology is going to so profoundly disrupt the job market. If we don't do it, there's just going to be too much chaos and insecurity. I mean, think about, for example, 10, I mean, 3 million Americans make a living through driving, whether it's trucks or cars. Um, those jobs are just not going to exist 10 years from now, right? We're, uh, oh, yeah. It's going to all be right. self-driving cars, yeah. right? Um, think about that. Right. That's 3 million people. That's, that's always been a really good option for people with, you know, l relatively low educational attainment. Um, that's just gone, right? That's just going to be gone very, very soon. Um What's that going to do to the job market, right? The, where are those people going to go? Um, again, this is something where universal, you know, we can live in a fantasy world where we pretend as President Trump tells people that we're going to start manufacturing iPhones in Indiana again. In our hearts, we all know that. I think even, you know, President Trump's supporters, who I have a lot of sympathy for, actually, although I obviously am not a Trump supporter, have a lot of sympathy for a lot of the reasons why they voted for, for Trump. But the, the, um, the, you know, that's, I think even they know that's not going to happen. Right? No. Much as they would like it to. Both, we, this is a real I mean, way. I, an iPhone would be $10,000 if that did happen. There would be 20 people in the country who own one. You know? We started manufacturing a lot of those things yeah. back here. Exactly. Well, hey, man. We, this is a oh, way. Go, sorry, go ahead. Well, this is just the last thought. This is a way of restoring a sense of the future that is actually realistic um, and is being tried in lots of parts of the world. Now, Canada's doing another experiment in it. In Scotland, they're doing an experiment in it. Uh, the Netherlands are doing an experiment in it. So this is kind of a preventative strategy as well, because if you have enough people fall through the cracks in society, that's going to be detrimental for everybody across the board, not just the people falling through the cracks. Exactly. Totally. Absolutely true. Absolutely. Money, because it reduces all sorts of social problems like crime and violence. Right. Um, it saves so much. 100%. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. And like I said, I love the book. And people can go to thelostconnections.com, right, if they want some more information. Yeah, my publishers have told me to say this little thing, which always makes me feel like a really bad advertisement. But if people want any more information about the book, if they want to find out what a huge range of people have said about the book, from Elton John to Russell Brand to Hillary Clinton to Tucker Carlson 
to uh, Ariana Huffington. Um, they can go to www.thelostconnections.com. They can take a quiz how much they know about the real causes of depression and anxiety and uh, listen to audio of loads of the amazing people that we've talked about, those people in Berlin, loads of the experts I interviewed, um, and they can find out where to buy the book. is available not just as a uh, physical book, but also as an audio book from audible.com. They can get a link to that. and uh, They can watch videos of cool stuff where I talk about the cause of depression and anxiety. So yeah, thelostconnections.com. They, oh yeah, that's the other thing I meant to say. They can figure out where to follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Although I did an interview recently where at the end they were like, what's your Twitter, what's your Facebook? And then they said, what's your Snapchat? And I was like... I am a 39-year-old man, right? <laughs> only 39-year-old men, only 39-year-old men on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles, right? Like, so I, have, I will go a long way to get my message out there. I will not go on Snapchat. I have, I have to draw the line somewhere, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, well, thank you both so much for being so thoughtful and engaging so much with this argument. And it's, I found this a really moving conversation. So thank you so much. And Ian, Email me because I want to introduce you to Isabel, who you will abs- everyone yeah, falls in love with Isabel. Uh, Isabel oh, yeah. Great. Thank you very much. You have a great day. Take Thank care. you. Cheers. Good night. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. That, that was a great conversation. Definitely check yeah. out Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression. Don't just listen to this interview and then go back to whatever you're, you're doing. Get the book. Right. Yeah, the book, the book is one of those books that, I mean, I have it in my Kindle, but... I'm going to keep it in my Kindle because it's one of those Me books too. I want to revisit a few times, especially after talking to him. Now, now I've read the book about a month ago. I want to go back and reread it again. Well, great. We can wrap up right there. You guys know what to do. Use that coupon code LLA. Go get 10% off at MikeMahler.com, AggressiveStrength.com. Give us some reviews. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Go on iTunes. Go on Stitcher. Share it on Facebook, Twitter. Just do it while you're not doing something else, such as going to a concert right. or driving car <laughs> <laughs> driving especially driving in front of me because i'm the guy that's gonna pull up next to you blow my horn really loudly and give you that what the fuck man look <laughs> why are you doing that you listen to the dude. episode while you're driving but just don't do anything else <laughs> <laughs> all right cool man so we'll get you back right. on the next episode also um don't forget head over to patreon.com slash lla podcast and yeah become a monthly supporter that way too all right folks that's gonna wrap it up Catch you guys on the next episode. Take care, everybody. Take care, everyone. Bye.